The Dry Cleaner Cast presents Need to Know. Need to Know is a podcast featuring conversations with security experts focused on the terrorism and intelligence stories dominating the headlines. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. This is Need to Know. Hello everybody and welcome to today's podcast. I'm joined by author and journalist Ian Ballantyne and we take a look at how the coronavirus is affecting navies across the world. We also take a look at Warships magazine, which has published its first digital edition. If you're enjoying this show, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. If you go to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast, you'll get access to new exclusive episodes just for Patreon subscribers. You'll also get early access to our interviews. And if you subscribe at over $15 a month, you'll also get a copy of the film The Dry Cleaner. Also, if you like the show, please leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast app. Every positive review or every review helps us gain more listeners. Also, if you like this podcast, you may enjoy my short film, The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is my first attempt at spy fiction, and it is now available on iTunes and Amazon. All you need to do is type in The Dry Cleaner Film to iTunes or Amazon, and you'll see the film come up. I think it comes in about $1.99. If you become a Patreon subscriber at over $15, you will get a copy of that film included with your subscription. So, you have the choice there. And without further ado, let's get on with the episode. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this one. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Ian, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, bearing up under the uh, current conditions. Good. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God, we're all uh, <laughs> working in very strange conditions at the moment. I think I mentioned to you, I'm at currently working from my um, chest of drawers. So. <laughs> Brilliant. You know. That beats me. I'm in a garage. So, yeah. you know. Oh, I... <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a posh garage. It's converted to an office. Oh, so. that's good. That's good. Yeah, but it's, it's a bit like a bunker. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, dear. I hope that's not the, the future of things to come being in a bunker. But. <laughs> But um, so, Ian, for the benefit of new listeners, um, can you just tell us a bit about yourself? Um, I'm uh, the editor of uh, a magazine. This is my daily bread and butter called uh, Warships International Free Review, which has been around for 22 years and sells normally around the world in high street shops um, and looks at uh, global naval news, commentary and analysis. And um, we also sell uh, subscriptions online and we're just, just going digital. Uh, but beyond that, Prior to that, I was a newspaper defence reporter and a defence and diplomatic correspondent based in London. And um, also I write naval history books yeah. uh, on the Navy uh, of World War Two and before, and also the Cold War, uh, submarines in particular in recent times. But most recently, a book on the Battle of Arnhem, which was a bit of a personal project for me, uh, but that I really wanted to do last year for the anniversary. So I've, I'm kind of moving into military history uh, a broader military history, I hope, anyway. Yeah, fantastic. fantastic. So the magazine, was it 22 years it's been running? Yeah, 22 yeah. years. since. So the first uh, edition was actually uh, out in April 1998. Yeah. And wow. at that stage, we were quarterly. Then we moved to 
six a year, and uh, since about 2004, it was every month. Fantastic. And so how did that magazine come about? And are there any um, kind of key things that you've covered over the years? As a defence reporter, writing for newspapers and uh, working for an agency in London for a short while, uh, I covered uh, the post-Cold War scene uh, from uh, the fall, you could say the fall of the Soviet Union. And I went to Russia, the Soviet Union itself a couple of times, went to Latvia, I covered um, navies in the Gulf at the time of Desert Shield and Desert Storm, went ashore into Kuwait at the end of that war, and I did the Royal Navy in, in the Adriatic. So I went away a lot and covered uh, warships on deployment, visited various nationalities, warships. So I got a good feel for frontline uh, naval operations. And then uh, having worked in London doing covering the Ministry of Defence for, as I say, a short period, uh, I then went freelance and... Um, thought that I would build on those skills that I'd acquired over a period of about um, seven or eight years and proposed this magazine when a, the publisher got in touch with me and said, we'd like to start up some kind of naval news and uh, events mag. So I came up with a concept for them and we agreed to terms and then it, it started from there. Fantastic. Do you remember the film The Hunt for October? I think, like, um, was it Jack Ryan's yeah. a bit of a submarine yeah, yeah, enthusiast? Yeah. yeah. I kind of feel like Warships magazine is the kind of magazine the real Jack Ryan would be reading. <laughs> well, I hope so. I did meet a um, a person that worked in naval intelligence once mm. on a, um, a Royal Navy warship off Cape Wrath, the northern yeah. tip of Scotland, during an exercise. And he uh, sort of sidled up to myself and the photographer I was with in the wardroom when we were having a drink mm. and mm. said that it was, a, it was a very good source of information. And so I was uh, quite chuffed by that. So, you know, maybe it is useful to them. But I think our main readership is people um, um, serving people in navies, retired people in navies, people interested in geopolitics, yeah. people like warships. It's a sort of fairly broad church. But, they, you know, you never know. They might, the, um, the various people around the world that are trying to keep up to speed on naval intelligence, they might well dip into it, I think. Yeah, yeah, fantastic, fantastic. So what's in your kind of current issue? Because um, you've now gone digital, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, the, the latest, the one that's on out at the moment is our April uh, 2020 edition, and um, that has got all sorts of things in it, um, looking at the Australian Future Submarine Programme, which has been going through a bit of a, a turbulent time, uh, the growth and modernisation of uh, China's uh, Marine Corps, um, potential cuts in the Royal Navy. I mean, obviously, events since we went to press on it might have changed that. I think the review into the UK Armed Forces has now been suspended. Uh, and we're also looking at the US Navy and its and other navies and how they might be bringing into, into service what are called hypersonic strike weapons. And then we have a bit of history, which is on the, uh, the Norwegian campaign of 1940, because we have a series on anniversaries in World War Two, the 80th anniversaries. And uh, that's a fairly obscure campaign to most people, well known to naval historians. So we mix in current affairs and news and commentary. And those are some of the topics that are in the April edition, which is currently out. And that's our first, what you would call our first digital edition, which is you can read on all, all platforms and is available direct from the publisher. And your monthly, so what time of the month does it usually come out? Well, that one is just coming near the end of its, um, its shelf life, if you like. Um, and so that's got about another 10 days. And then the next actual edition, which is the newest one, will be the May edition, which comes out on April the 24th. And uh, that, uh, by actual coincidental timing, has uh, the US Navy carrier Theodore Roosevelt on the cover, which has been at the centre of a, um, a big story about uh, COVID and sailors uh, catching it and then the captain requesting 
put them ashore. It's a very controversial topic because he subsequently was uh, taken away from command of the carrier and there was a row with the acting Navy secretary in the States. And then he he had to resign. So it's a, I haven't really got into that yet because it fell just as we were going to deadline. But what we have got is we've got a roundup of how uh, navies have been conducting their business in uh, the current conditions with the uh, the global, you know, the pandemic. And so apart from some coverage of that, we've got a, a report on what way the U.S. Navy will go in terms of future aircraft carriers, big or small. Uh, we've got to look at problems with the, the Royal Navy maintaining three to four uh, nuclear missile submarines in service, a look at Iran's growing maritime air power, and then also uh, a bit on a Royal Navy investment in uh, what you might call robot subs, mm. plus various other things, uh, um, the usual dash of a bit of history and a bit of um, got some broad reviews, you know, the sort of general stuff. But that's the May edition, which is out on April the 24th. April 24th. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, let's have a, let's, well, I'd like to look at some of those topics that are in some of the magazines. Um, so we're going to have a bit of a, a chat about some of the things from the April and May edition. But um, like with everything, the coronavirus has had an effect on navies worldwide. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how some of the different navies are kind of responding to the threat of coronavirus whilst also continuing their duties? If you watch the, um, the evolution of this thing, mm. there was a, a determined effort by uh, NATO navies uh, in particular and also the Russians in particular to uh, send out vessels uh, on their usual business. So in um, mid to late March, you had quite a lot of activity where the Russians were sending out their warships on the usual pattern of traveling, let's say, from the Baltic down to the Mediterranean or on patrol in the Indian Ocean uh, or coming up uh, and round from Murmansk and down through uh, the North the North Sea and uh, w- quite a, a sizable group for the Russians of uh, several warships and auxiliaries and that was tracked and trailed by uh, a NATO task group and also quite quite a few Royal Navy ships in fact the most I've ever seen in recent years sent out to track a group of Russian warships which included uh, four frigates and two patrol vessels and also a survey vessel and other backups so there was a determined effort by NATO UK, Russia, to show that business as usual was going on. And in the, in the Mediterranean, which is a fairly tense area at the eastern end, you had the Russians conducting missile firings um, against uh, targets, practiced firings against targets, and NATO sending a, another task group into the Black Sea to patrol up and down uh, not far from Russia. So there's certainly in that area a determined effort to show that it was business as usual. But there were signs obviously, that it wasn't business as usual. Um, for example, at the home of the UK nuclear deterrent, uh, HM Never West Clyde, which is also known as Faz Lane, there was a report of some um, submariners or some sailors uh, being affected by the coronavirus. And then other, other things cropped up. Most notoriously, by the end of March you, and beginning of April, you had the USS Theodore Roosevelt having to go into Guam with the captain requesting to put people off the ship because the, it was not a good place to be trapped with the virus with 5,000 young people living in uh, close proximity. And then um, the, the, obviously the naval leadership and uh, the, the Pentagon there were saying, well, you still have to operate the ship. Uh, but he, the captain was saying, but it's not wartime, so there's no need for people to die. So let's get people off and sort out the ship. 
So there's a whole controversy. I won't get into too much there. Whereas I mentioned earlier, there were all sorts of people either resigning or um, losing their jobs. So that's, that was fairly big news. And then also uh, a Dutch submarine, which was on exercise with NATO units off the UK, uh, was called back to Holland because I think they'd had um, uh, a few uh, cases. And also um, just within the past few days, the uh, French aircraft carrier, the Charles de Gaulle, which has been out um, on um, active operations in the eastern Mediterranean, running airstrikes on terrorist targets in Syria, etc., uh, was then due to take part in this same exercise as the Dutch submarine off the coast of Scotland. It's called Joint Warrior. That's Joint Warrior is a, a major exercise. And they uh, Charles de Gaulle headed home uh, because they've suffered a, an outbreak too. So it's, uh, it's gradually... Uh, infused itself into naval forces at sea. But I would say that those are obviously naval forces that have come into port, have paid visits to, uh, in the case of the Charles de Gaulle, Cyprus, elsewhere, you know, um, probably some ports in Europe. And the same goes for the submarine, which is a diesel submarine, which would um, routinely come into port. So those are uh, ships that have got routine contact with during the course of a, a patrol or deployment with civilian populations ashore. And that would include the Theodore Roosevelt, which due to the nature of the deployment called uh, uh, overseas uh, ports, friendly ports, for people to have a run ashore and um, carry out what they call defence diplomacy, which is to meet local people, you know, help with the charitable causes, uh, shake, shake the hands of dignitaries and mix in the bars and, and shops and whatever. So any vessel, naval vessel, like any... any anybody else in the world at the moment if you go out in crowded areas uh, as it were you know four weeks ago five weeks ago uh, in shops and entertainment venues then there's a chance that people will get it and that's why those vessels um, have um, been pro to it and so yeah. Uh, decided yeah. to go home. Yeah. And what's the situation with submarines? Because I'm assuming there must have been some that had put out to sea before this became a real issue. The obvious example of that, I suppose, are the nuclear deterrent submarines of various nations mm. um, that that have uh, ballistic missiles at sea, under the sea, for long patrols. So that's the UK, the USA, Russia, China, France. And, uh, um, and um, my knowledge here is a bit sketchy, to a greater or lesser degree, India, probably. And um, also the Chinese, I'm not sure how, how often they deploy a ballistic missile submarine, but certainly any, any Navy that has sent a ballistic missile submarine with uh, loaded with Trident or whatever else out to sea in, what should we say, February or January before uh, the thing was a uh, pandemic to a high degree will be immune from it. The crew will be because they stay under the sea isolated from uh, the outside world for several weeks. So they won't, um, and their, their whole aim is to stay under, stay away from everywhere and uh, just be invisible. So they, they, will, they will have been immune to it. Um, and it, of course, they have to come back at some stage. How long can a sub stay out at sea before it really has to kind of come back to reload for, with food and things like that? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the answer's uh, in, in that, in food. Um, a nuclear pad submarine can stay under the sea on deployment uh, forever, mm. but it's the the ability of uh, two things: the ability of um, the crew uh, to stay sane, and um, the food on board. Um, so those two things are the major factors. And obviously, they have to have a mission as well. Uh, yes, but yeah. a nuclear pad, something I theoretically can do it uh, for um, 
forever, you know. He sounds a bit like, I don't know if you're familiar with, is it Neville Shoot? Um, his yeah. books. <laughs> this on the is, beach. That's it. On the beach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, on the beach. Yeah, but that was a submarine that... Um, an American mm. uh, early um, ballistic missile submarine that ended up in Australia after the world got um, the the rest of the world more or less got nuked, mm. and uh, so they were stranded in um, Australia and trying to figure out if there was anybody left alive back in America. It's not the most in- uplifting of uh, <laughs> novels to read. No, I I have read it for research and watched the movie with Gregory Peck in. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's. Um, that that is a Hollywood version of it, but I um, mean, yeah. there was also that thing on TV which I never watched about a submarine, a ballistic missile submarine that travelled around the world recently. The only vessel left, um, but um, I think I know yeah. which one you mean. I can't remember what it's called now. Is it like the last, the last ship or something? No, that was yeah. actually about an American destroyer, ah, which okay. is a similar thing. Yeah. So there's a kind of theme here in that yeah. navies are, I guess, um, communities unto themselves. Mm. So in, depending on circumstance, they'll be. Um, you know, supposedly it's seen and, and safe from uh, infection. Yeah, yeah. But of course, you know, if they have to call into a port, that's not the case. And um, uh, I'm sure the submariners are probably very fit when it comes to uh, surviving uh, isolation and lockdown because that's mm. what they do for weeks at a time anyway. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll touch upon that towards the end because uh, yeah, um, yeah, I'm sure there's some tips we could probably get from uh, submariners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, things I might have picked up from some of those guys that I know. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. So despite the the coronavirus, there are other important sort of developments that have been going on on the naval front worldwide at the moment. Um, you mentioned earlier that there are some plans, some further cuts planned for the Royal Navy, or at least there were, um, and there was um, an interesting article in your magazine about the MOD seems to be focusing on th- threats in space um, to like yeah. satellites and things like that. And and there's a, th- a theory that um, that they might be a bit sort of blind to sort of the dangers on Earth. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of that? It's not that there are confirmed cuts. I mean, there have been since the end of the Cold War. The Royal Navy, uh, to pick one example, has shrunk. Mm. Um, two-thirds yeah. and uh, it's gone down uh, precipitously and you can understand why the Royal Navy would be cut post-Cold War how it would change and all the rest of it but there's certainly a feeling that um, over the past 10 years or so um, there's been uh, a mentality in uh, governments to see the armed forces in general but the Royal Navy um, in particular in some ways, depending on whether or not we were fighting on land in Afghanistan or Iraq, as a sacrificial cow, you know, to be cut and things to be pared back and ships could go down and numbers could disappear. But in the opinion of many people, they've reached the lowest level that they can be at if you're going to be realistic and pragmatic about being a proper fighting navy. So at the moment, it's supposed to be 19 frigates and destroyers uh, they've got two new aircraft carriers. They've got, um, let's say, half a dozen amphibious assault ships. And, and so it's down to what any Navy that has pretensions and aims and objectives to being a global force can, can run because you've got to divide every ship you've got by three. So if you've got um, 19 you know, uh, destroyers and frigates that do all sorts of jobs all around the world and are hard pushed at the best of times, uh, then that's going to cut you down to six. And then if you have problems with um, mechanical issues with the ship's uh, machinery or they need to be upgraded, that'll cut it down to four. So there's there's a constant fear in the background that um, the politicians that are looking for cuts 
in a defence budget that's already at uh, 2% or just under, which is very, very low uh, compared to even recent times, like 10 years ago. I think it was um, 5% at the time of the two wars in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, which uh, is understandable. They had to fund those wars if they were going to fight them, regardless of whether or not you thought they were a good idea. Um, so um, there's just a, a worry and a, 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 an anxiety that despite getting new aircraft carriers, which are all nice and spectacular and offer great um, capabilities, the rest of the Navy is actually still going to be whittled away. And one day we will find ourselves in a situation in, in a, ge a geopolitical uh, arena where um, all the assurances that we can cope with a small navy and with, with these large aircraft carriers will disappear because future wars are going to be very brutal, very short and very sharp. And we all hope they will never happen. But your best insurance policy is conventional deterrence. And so the worry is, and that's the reason behind our, our, um, our mention of the, the fears in the uh, April edition about more cuts, because if you get rid of more hardware... Uh, and I know they're building new frigates uh, as well, but that's going to take years, years and years to get those in service. You could be caught short in the meantime. And so there's this whole idea in government now that maybe you can make up for lack of hardware and firepower by having um, a space force mm. or cyber <laughs> or AI. But of course, those things are years away as well. Mm. And if you look at potential foes um, that the UK or anybody else has in this sort of the Western sphere, they are uh, equipping themselves with, depending on what their needs are, serious hardware and serious firepower. And uh, they mean where it, where it suits them to control um, their areas of interest. So um, you can't just stare at the stars or uh, do blue skies thinking and get rid of everything you've got at the moment and you might need for the next 20 years, you know. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's easy to get cut short. I mean, I don't know whether this is slightly off topic, but am I right in thinking that some of the the situation that led to the, the Falkland Islands um, uh, assault in 1982 were partly as a response, um, as a kind of response to the Royal Navy or the British appearing to be less than serious in looking after the islands. I think they only had one ship on patrol. Yeah, well, that was part of it. There was um, the, not, the notorious Knott review. Mm. John Knott, um, the uh, Margaret Thatcher's defence minister at that time, um, was was presiding over what was a major defence review that aimed to cut um, amphibious assault ships um, and make changes to the Royal Marines, get rid of uh, the aircraft carriers uh, or the the uh, they had the the Hermes, which was an older ship, and you had the Invincible, a new ship, what they called a through deck cruiser, was really a, a light aircraft carrier with Sea Harriers. The idea was that in, Invincible would be sold to Australia. And all these signals were being sent out. And the Endurance, which was an elderly ice patrol vessel, was the major unit down in uh, the South Atlantic patrolling around the Falkland Islands in South Georgia. And so the intention was that she would be withdrawn from service. So the, the, you know, the military junta in um, Argentina, which was seeking to divert um, its domestic attention away from what it was up to internally, uh, the you know death squads etc um, thought that it would um, uh, follow uh, what it perceived and many Argentinian people perceived and still do as a, a rightful claim to what they call the Malvinas which is the Falkland Islands so that was then used as a kind of distraction as many people 
many um, dictatorships and other governments have done in the past to distract from domestic problems by finding an overseas cause that would unify the nation, and that was invading the Falklands. So when the UK looked like it was giving up on uh, power projection and the ability to even send a patrol vessel down to the Falkland Islands, they thought they could act, and they did. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, what you're saying there is signalling and intent are major, are major issues. So if you signal that you're not really interested in hardware, you're not really interested in even the minimum ability to protect your interests, whatever they are around the world, then, of course, anybody that's seeking to exert influence and dominance in areas that you're interested in will exploit that weakness so i guess that's what you're saying yeah definitely and there's a you know history is the is a great lesson in that because most of the major conflicts usually are down to that sort of um kind of signals being sent out that yeah. uh, that you're less than serious like even with world war Two, prior to that the royal navy had gone through major cuts as well um and then obviously they had to ramp up production whilst being bombed and stuff so it's and, and obviously have to borrow ships from america yeah i mean with world war Two, i guess the the turning point was the munich crisis and up until then had been the uh, it's true the royal navy had been cut and cut and cut and you had the 10-year rule mm. uh, which had been introduced whereby that defense spending would not be raised for 10 years because there was no threat mm. for 10 years but because mm. they renewed the 10-year rule every year mm. so it, meant it was a never-ending um, end to it so by the early thir- uh, mid-30s i would say um they realized that um something needed to be done so and de- investment in defense mm. came up again but back then you had years to uh, put right the uh, the damage and it was uh, um, and so you had time and you don't have time anymore you mm. won't have time anymore and and ai and um uh, what you might call cy- uh, cyber and also uh, space and and robotics they are the future mm. they're just not here yet mm. you know they are definitely the future of warfare and that throws up a lot of a lot of uh, questions well it does yeah maybe touch upon that in a minute the whole cyber area is sort of fascinating and quite sort of disturbing as well yeah <laughs> but um, yeah. back on the sort of defense cuts um one of the one of the interesting things is that in contrast to the defense cuts kind of being proposed in the uk and obviously america's now doing a review of its carrier fleet um you've got uh, russia who seem to be um making announcements that they actually want to expand their their fleet numbers um and so it's, it's quite an interesting sort of time really i don't know if you've um have any thoughts on sort of russia wanting to boost their numbers russia's a very interesting case in that the russians have deliberately um looked at where they might be strongest and where we might be uh, weakest, because this, you know, since 2014, it's clear they now see themselves as major rivals, um, and uh, in not in a friendly way with uh, with the West, with NATO. They they don't like NATO. They don't like the way NATO appears to be encroaching upon them, and they also want to re-establish their spheres of influence and interest in, let's say, the Middle East and and elsewhere. And the the Russians have um, decided that what would suit them is to have um, uh, corvettes, that is uh, smaller than frigates, but corvettes, small, smallish warships, but still fairly well armed with cruise missiles and, and other weaponry, and also um, ballistic missile submarines with nuclear weapons, mm. with ballistic missiles, and cruise missile submarines and attack submarines. So you've got the kind of high-low mix, and then there's a few in between, like um, kilo-class submarines, which are diesel-electric submarines, but which they've built in fairly high numbers 
um, and they, they've got cruise missiles and they've been uh, used in, in action against targets in Syria on behalf of the Assad regime. And then they're now looking, if you believe what their defence ministers say, this is a story in the May edition, actually, of the MAG, uh, that's out soon, uh, that they're now going to boost production of frigates, which are larger, um, the Admiral uh, Gorshkov-class frigates, which are larger, have more, more weapons, etc. So they're, they're looking whatever their mix is that suits what they want to do, and they've invested heavily in, in uh, spy ships and also, also in submarines that can carry out covert um, operations like um, look at undersea communications cables and tap into them. And so they, they are definitely looking at areas of capability which suit the aims of, of Russia, which is quite sensible. So they, um, whether or not they'll ever build a big aircraft carrier, they have a very old aircraft carrier at the moment, which um, recently caught fire. Yes, uh, I saw a that. refit. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they, whether or not they should just carry on investing in that kind of totem of uh, superpower status, I don't know. Uh, but they certainly have plans for assault carriers, that is, mm. carriers that can launch uh, helicopters and uh, marines, naval infantry, as they call them. Mm. And uh, so they are, yeah, I mean, they certainly do look at themselves as a maritime power mm. as much as a land power. Mm. Why did Russia not kind of go down the carrier route like America did? Um, I think at the time they they felt that they need to combat I mean, you're going way back, you know, in the 1960s. They felt they needed to just invest in um, helicopter carriers that could carry um, anti-submarine helicopters and nuclear-powered submarines. I mean, that was the cutting edge of their effort during the Cold Wars. The nuclear-powered submarines are a massive nuclear-powered submarine force. So I just think they thought that that was more suited to what they needed. Because if you think about it, when, when one of the tactics... Um, for the U.S. Navy and, and the Royal Navy when we had a, a big deck carrier, the Last Ark Royal, was to send aircraft carriers up into the north, up into waters off Iceland, and then sort of threaten the Russians uh, with power projection from there because that was a shorter route into Russia, theoretically, but also to push our nuclear submarines forward as well. So there was, I suppose the Russians look, look at the world from Moscow's point of view, all hemmed in. They just thought it was better to have the things that could... Um, break them out, as it were. Mm. And so I, I think that's still the point of view. I mean, they have used an aircraft carrier in the Eastern Med, uh, the Kuznetsov, this old carrier, um, but it's got limited um, use um, because they, they have to launch their aircraft off a ski ramp. And they can't, it is said they can't carry all their, their bomb loads um, on missions, so they had to actually fly their aircraft off to Syria Mm. And then fly the missions from there. Mm. So they they realised that they they I don't I think they realised they can to get into that game and keep up with the Americans would be uh, just probably an unwise idea. Yeah, no, fair enough. And we mentioned uh, the the American governor actually now reviewing the future of their carrier fleet, and um, and there's also a lot of talk about with the defence cuts and things about going into robotic ships and submarines yeah. instead of manned yeah. ships. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? In the May edition, mm. uh, just to harp on about it, mm, that's good. A shameless bit of self promotion <laughs> the, uh, for the magazine. We yeah, I mean we we uh, do have a piece. Uh, by a guy called uh, David Axe, who's based over in the USA, mm. a very good um, journalist, who's looking at um, the mix. And this is a mm. perennial uh, debate, I would say, in, in the US Navy, the mix. Do you have more smaller light carriers? Um, do you have more smaller light carriers, or do you stick with the 10 or so 
big, huge, gigantic carriers of like 100,000 tons. And they are, the Americans are still investing in the, uh, uh, the new carriers, the Ford class, but they are incredibly expensive, $13 billion uh, per ship which uh, they need to get that cost down. And they also, also they've got to look at the fact that with um, new missile systems, and they're always thinking about China and the Chinese threat, um, with ballistic missiles, that if they get the right targeting, timely targeting information, can potentially sink an aircraft carrier. With 5,000 people, 100 aircraft, nuclear, nuclear propelled, you know, you imagine, take that out with the a ballistic missile, mm. and it causes a terrible disaster mm. uh, for for the navy that's operating off China, and also probably a, a huge political impact in America, and probably would demoralise and could even win a war mm. for China if they mm. managed to do that. So mm. they they they're now thinking, the Americans are now thinking, well, maybe we should mix in more light carriers, um, as they call them, with these big carriers mm. and build and and. They're not thinking at this stage, I don't think, of building new, smaller aircraft carriers with less aircraft that will be spread over a wider area and therefore less vulnerable. They're thinking that their current uh, assault carriers, amphibious assault carriers, the landing helicopter dock, sorry, the um, landing platform helicopter and uh, assault carriers. Mm. Those ships, those big ships with all the, uh, they currently carry um, F-35B or Harriers, uh, let's say, on average, about eight or nine. Mm. Well, they're thinking that maybe they could have some of those with 20 F-35B jets or 20 Harriers mm. on. And they have done that in the past, in the Iraq War and also during um, the uh, Desert Storm and during, the, I think, the, possibly the intervention in Afghanistan. But they certainly have used what they call the amphibious, uh, what, what I call the amphibious assault carriers um, as light carriers in the past. So the Americans are thinking, well, shall we invest more in in those sort of ships, put more aircraft on those, distribute them over a wider area, and therefore, if China or any other enemy seeks to just take out one of our carriers with a ballistic missile, uh, we can po- possibly keep the bigger ship further back, and maybe these other vessels can be spread over a wider area and less vulnerable to being sunk. So there's a whole... It's gone on for years, to be honest. The Americans have been having this debate for years because a carrier, you know, uh, 5,000 people, 100 aircraft, billions of dollars to build, and then you've got to run the thing. I mean, it's um, an immense investment. And to think that it could be taken out by a a ballistic missile um, and gone is just a horrific idea. So that's the debate, a major debate that's going on at the moment. It's what what emphasis, I would say, they put on more more planes on these... um, traditionally amphibious assault carriers um, and what they do with their big carriers, which they'll still have for, for a few decades yet. Yeah. There's also talk about these sort of, um, the, it's becoming more popular to talk about sort of drone, you know, drones of aircraft, now drone ships and drone subs. Um, <laughs> what are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, robotic. Your, yeah, what are your thoughts yeah. on, on that sort of trend? It's happening. I mean, yeah. it's, it's going on. We've already seen it with... Um, as I'm sure you've discussed on your podcast, you know, drone strikes mm, against mm. the terrorist targets. Mm. And certainly the Royal Navy's just in, announced investment in um, what they call um, extra-large under-sea vehicles. Mm. Uh, again, the terminology sometimes eludes me. But anyway, what I would call uh, robot subs, drones, large large drones. Mm. They could be about, let's say, 100 foot long, and they will go out and uh, carry sensors and be sent out um, from maybe a mother a mother submarine or a mother vessel 
um, a surface vessel and, and do a lot of searching and identifying the targets and go into areas where they can do surveillance. Um, and then you've got unmanned uh, air vehicles flying for, will fly from carriers. They already fly from, from warships. So it's coming. It's there. You know, it's just what, what level you have it and what, what, what ability do you delegate to the drone to actually kill people uh, independent of the human input? And certainly, for example, the F-35B, um, I was told by a senior Royal Navy Admiral with an aviation background, this was in an interview for the, one of our guides to the Royal Navy. We run a publication called The Guide to the Royal Navy as well. He said, he explained that the F-35B basically could be the nodal point for um, uh, three or four drones. And, and so the idea would be you have your carrier, uh, whether it's British or American, and you send the F-35B up and you have a few drone aircraft, armed drones, let's say, uh, with, with that with that 35b and then the, the drones are the ones that go right in so you can you can extend the mental space as it were or the the distance to target hundreds of miles and keep the carrier uh, safe way back and send the f35b up control these drones which would go forward and um you know would be the ones that that take the risk though of course there's no people in them um and then there's the whole issue of um if you arm drones and you delegate to them uh, the morality of it, because uh, again, something that I was told by a, a senior officer in the, uh, actually in the Royal Marines years ago, when we were discussing various things, he was mm -hmm. troubled by the idea that, that drones and um, robotics could be given uh, independent authority. And this, this plays into AI, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, does, I'm not yeah. a great expert on that. And he was worried that, you know, where's the human input? Because there'll be situations where it's actually a better idea not to fire, not to just shoot, and not to just bomb. So it's the whole morality mm. of warfare. Mm. So there's that danger that needs to be looked at. Of um, you know, think, well, it's, it's like Skynet, isn't it? In um, in Terminator, in the Terminator films. Well, it is. I mean, it's the thing. Robots don't really do three dimensional thinking. They kind of, um, you know, that that critical moment when deciding not to shoot is very important. And I and I just don't believe, no matter how good AI will be, there will ever be a, a real capability for a robot to make that decision. Yeah, absolutely. And the, so we have to acknowledge. I mean, for all the you know. Um, commentaries in my mag about um governments need to think about the here and now and down on earth and not just space and robots and ais they are coming and they are developing mm. uh, and so i think um i don't think you would meet any um service uh per, per services armed forces person that i know um certainly none of them and i'm sure none of them in 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 the military nobody in the military would say that the idea of of morality and um the human input um being taken out of warfare uh, is um, is not troubling because obviously, um, you know, you have to say, well, it isn't just a game of top trumps. This isn't just about an arcade game. These are people. These are communities. These are the futures of nations that are at stake. You can't just have automated warfare. I think that's um, something that needs to be looked at. Definitely. And the, and the risk of the, the hardware being high, well, hacked not hijacked hacked by some by either you know terrorist groups or or yeah. even a, a nation state and and then that being turned against civilians i mean uh, there's all sorts of horrific scenarios that you could play out and i'm sure in fiction those have been played out yeah yeah i would agree <laughs> yeah i just I, I could imagine 
Yeah, can you imagine, like, in, I don't know, 20 years' time, the next version of 9-11 could actually be, I don't know, drones being turned against civilians or something? It's, well, it's, yeah, um, I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't think anything is, is out of the question. And mm-hmm. um, I think the um, navies of the world will be thinking about all that, and also the other military, and also I hope the politicians and anybody else. And, mm-hmm. you know, what was it? Was it Churchill said, George Orwell's always better than World War. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that's um, disappeared, the need to talk and mm. realise actually you're not at war with somebody. You don't have to do this. And you shouldn't just resort to what is seen as a quick fix, yeah. which is, oh, we'll go and bomb someone because that, that, that won't cost us anything. But it costs somebody something somewhere. Mm. And it'll be the same with um, AI and drones and everything. They have to be strict protocols, I think. Yeah. Well, is it, the thing that comes to my mind, actually, is what's interesting is it takes great skill to be able to actually fly a jet fighter. Um, and it means a specialist person has to be able to be trained and fly in it. But if you make it all turn it all into a video game, any teenager could kind of fly a drone. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know about that. I hope my um, teenage son is out there flying a the drone around. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, if somebody had the, you know, that's the thing. It doesn't, I think all it would take is the skill of a hacker. And then after that, the skills diminished, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, the navies already do take um, precautions. They kind of seal their systems mm. when they're at sea because they're very much aware that, mm. you know, somebody could invade, let's say, the control room of, um, of uh, the ops room of a, uh, of a warship and then start firing off or just interfering with, uh, with things and detecting things. So, yeah, I mean, they, they, uh, I mean, you do have cyber commands in you know, US, the US Cyber Command. There are cyber cyber commands in various armed forces. Um, and we had a recent article, it was very interesting, from um, about the Peruvian Navy Cyber Command. That was in a, a previous edition. So they're putting a lot of effort into that. And they're actually being used by um, civilian authorities to help them fight off um, potential hacking mm. and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of that 80s movie War Games. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, do you remember uh, that? Oh, one goodness. with Matthew Broderick. That's yeah. the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Showing Just your age there. Yeah, you I can know. even remember it. Yeah. God, I know. I'm surprised nobody's trying to remake that. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but there we go. So, um, moving on from, from our dystopian future to our current yeah. dystopian present. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um... yeah, exactly. It's here and now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've seen sort of well, I mean, I've seen reports in in the pre- popular press, I put it that way, about um, China's apparently been taking advantage of this time to intimidate Taiwan. But um, it is part of an ongoing process, I suppose, isn't it? Um, have you? Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about sort of the China Taiwan dynamic um, from a naval perspective? I mean, obviously, China sees um, Taiwan as a kind of breakaway bit of China, which it is, you know, and doesn't regard it as legitimate. So it's been a long, a long standing aim to bring Taiwan back into the fold, as it were. Yeah. And from time to time, the, um, they've had a few periods of tension where missiles have been fired and, and um, across the strait or whatever, or uh, into the strait and uh, plans announced or dusted off by the Chinese for potentially invading Taiwan and taking it back and um, the Americans responded particularly in in the late 90s to uh, China making threats by Mm. sending a carrier Mm. strike group through the Taiwan Strait Mm. and that actually is what really got um, China aggravated uh, that the Americans could just sort of lord it with their uh, strike carrier you know strike carrier battle groups in waters off China and sail through the Taiwan Strait. And because at that stage, in the late 90s, China had a smallish, 
well, large but very old-fashioned and not very capable navy, they decided they would set down a plan to um, invest in uh, aircraft carriers or aircraft carrier capability or and build the navy up, which they have done substantially. Um, but they, they managed to acquire uh, an old Soviet-era ship, um, which was actually languishing in the Ukraine, which was not quite finished. And that was the, the same as the current Russian carrier, the Kuznetsov. And they, they had a front company which bought this vessel from the Ukraine allegedly as a um, casino. Um, a floating <laughs> I casino. think I remember seeing something in the press yeah, about that. Yeah, exactly. And we'll have that. And we carried it. We obviously carried, It was not long after the magazine mm, started that mm. we had the photos of it passing through and uh, the Turkish Straits out into the Black Sea. Yeah. And it was allegedly going to be a floating casino <laughs> in Macau. And, you know, everybody was thinking, mm. really? You know, and they, the, the reason they could get this aircraft carrier, because you're not allowed to have aircraft carriers in the Black Sea, they, they, they call them cruisers, and they don't have aircraft on them. So technically, you can build them, but you can't operate them. Mm. So the Chinese bought, this Chinese front company bought this um, not complete vessel, took it all the way to China. And then lo and behold, a few years later, that is actually the basis of, China's first aircraft carrier, which is in service. And Mm. that vessel has sailed through the Taiwan Strait several times just to say to the world, look, we're we're getting more powerful here. We've got task groups now. And you, Taiwan, uh, with this ship, we may not scare America because she's, in terms of an American aircraft carrier, not that capable. But we've got this vessel and we're building more. And they are building more. And I think they're going to build up to four. And so, we, you know, if we wanted to take you back, we're enhancing our Marine Corps, which is an article in, um, in the April edition of the MAG. We're enhancing our Marine Corps. They're building an assault carrier uh, or going to build assault carriers. They've got uh, landing ships. So they're, they're creating all the, all the actual capabilities you would need to power project around the world and also to um, reinforce the new island fortresses in the China, South China Sea and... Should they need it? Will they ever do it? Who knows? To have a go at taking back Taiwan, but I think mm. I think it's unlikely that they would ever actually do that. But mm. you never know. Who mm. knows? Well, this is it again, like we were saying earlier, with that theme of if if the West is cutting down its forces, it increases the chance of China thinking I might give it a go. Yeah, I mean, na- navies are expressions of um, a nation's health and influence, mm. and they do all sorts of things. They're not just for um, attacking; they are for attacking other people's navies and bombarding targets ashore. But they're also influential and they they show that you, uh, you, you're you somebody in the world and that you can exert influence. And they're also a deterrent as well. You don't have to use an aircraft carrier, something that we've done and the Americans have done, put a submarine somewhere off there and it just stops a war from happening. So China clearly understands, as the Russians do, that naval forces are an important component in their um place in the world and you know we we have traditionally in the uk understood that the americans certainly do but i don't think in the uk there's a general appreciation anymore um in quite the reality of what you need to invest to have the 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 ability to do that the new aircraft carriers the uk's got are mighty impressive if they have all their f-35b's if we have two in service that's great but at the same time you have to build a navy around those ships and the chinese the americans um, are and are building navies around. They have navies around those ships, so they can protect them and use them and and, and distribute their influence around the world. Whereas I think in Europe, the UK, um, 
you know, there's this kind of lack of understanding of um, what's necessary and an assumption, I think, in the West, in, in, in the UK, that maybe our friends and other people will always be there to fill in the gaps that we leave. Mm. And I don't think they should do that. But, you know, that it's called alliances, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And in, in the last sort of four or five years, I mean, those alliances like NATO are becoming increasingly threatened. Um, you know, currently with um, with the Trump administration, there's been many a talk of pulling out of NATO. And if Corbyn had um, got into number 10, there was talk of pulling out of NATO as well. All it takes is one politician to change that, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I actually, I mean, if you look at the reality mm. of, uh, let's look, at, I mean, if you look at that episode, which we, we've got a commentary on where the Russian warships came out, went down through the English Channel and the mm. NATO task groups came out. I mean, mm. you, you know, there's, there's no there's no way, um, there's no um, contest between the amount of technology and sophisticated vessels that, that NATO and the UK uh, were able to assemble to, and I guess that was the message that was sent, to track those Russian vessels um, and then send the group in. There's no doubt about that. But when it when it comes to further afield or working in a war or working in a tense situation or as a coalition to deal with a common threat, let's say elsewhere in the world or whatever, that's when things fragment. You know, like with the Iranian situation, you had a group led by America with Britain in it and a few other nations. Then you had the European group and then you had another group. And it kind of fragments the further away you get from the NATO sphere. And then, of course, you then move into the area of where China and America are having their... Uh, rivalry and then i don't think europe or the uk to be honest um is is much of a player in that yeah, you know yeah i think uh, so it, it kind of i wouldn't say the, the cause is hopeless i think nato is still a, a strong organization but mm. i think there might be a bit of confusion and this isn't helped by obviously the era of president trump or the the posturing of of people in europe either mm. some of the european mm. leaders mm. there's a sort of a doubt in the kind of unified will. I mm. think that's and that's dangerous. I think when yeah. you're facing people. Yeah, I know. In like in Germany, there's been a constant debate about defence spending, and I, th- and I get the impression I could be wrong, but they were sort of underspending in defence. Because am I right? The NATO members, it got to be something like two percent of your GDP. Or yeah, it, it has to be two percent. Yeah, yeah and there's, there's not. I mean, if you, I can't, I can't tell you the, which ones they are. <laughs> that's all right. But there, there are. I mean, some of them will surprise you. I think, but I mean, in terms of GDP. As a percentage, not not that many of them spend two percent, and Britain just about hits two percent. And it also makes me kind of laugh. And um, UK governments commit to two percent, but that actually is the minimum. It's like saying, "Well, we're going to spend the minimum. We're proud of spending the minimum." <laughs> so it's the minimum amount you're meant to spend to be in NATO. It's not actually what you may need to be uh, suitable for your defence. It's mm. the minimum. So most nations in NATO spend either under mm. or on the minimum. And I guess that's what infuriates the Americans. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Well, there's something to keep an eye on, definitely, over the next sort of, uh, well, over, um, beyond COVID, really, because I think that's an ongoing... Yeah, beyond COVID. Yeah, beyond COVID. You know, <laughs> That's what yeah. we're working towards here nice on this thought, podcast. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there is light at the end of the tunnel. We're getting there. Yeah, we hope so, yeah. But um, I suppose before that, uh, before we do get to the end of the, the COVID tunnel, um, when this all kicked off, I was, uh, you know, joking around on my social media Facebook sort of saying to friends that I'm kind of taking in inspiration from the submarine service and my plan was to to you know because you could drive yourself around the bend by kind of constantly being on the internet and looking at the news and, and end up um feeling down and depressed and 
I think the the idea was that um, my inspiration from submarines was I was going to um, only come up once a day to sort of see what's going on <laughs> in the world, and then the rest right. of the day I was going to devote myself to to other things, and obviously the podcast being one of them, and keep myself yeah, yeah. busy. Um, and I quite like this idea of the the submarine, and um, and obviously you've written lots of books in the submarine service. So is there anything? Well, <laughs> well two, two, but there's still there's still a lot. It's more than <laughs> most people. There's a lot in them. I'll yeah. say that. Yeah. They're huge. These books, they're great. But I know, um, <laughs> too huge. Yeah, but there you go. <laughs> oh, no, they're they're out there. They're fantastic. But um, is there anything you think that we can learn from life on a submarine as a bit of inspiration for our lockdown experience? And like you said, there's, there's, there's uh, I think you've you said there, you've got to have routine. You've got to have things, objectives that you can reach. I mean, I've, there was a great uh, tweet uh, that went out uh, recently um, by a submariner giving tips about this which very much mirrored um, a lot of stuff that actually a previous generation of submariners told me when I did a book called, um, in the UK, Hunter Killers, mm. about the Royal Navy's uh, Cold War submariners and submarines from mm. 45 to 91. And also um, in America, it's called Undersea Warriors, mm. uh, and it's just come out actually over there. And that, and uh, in particular, um, one chap there was... Um, the XO of a Polaris submarine, Rob Forsyth, who's a good friend of mine now, mm. and he 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 basically was the mayor of this small town called a Polaris submarine. As it was, um, he called himself the de facto mayor of mm. um, HMS Repulse. It cruised <laughs> along for five or six weeks, and he was presiding over this community of people mm. who he realised had to have routine and objectives in life, and so mm. did he. So you know, he 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 basically would help them organise entertainment and quizzes. I mean, I don't know about you, but myself and my family are part of a um, a quiz thing. Every Saturday we go on. Oh, that's good. Yeah, do you do that? No, well, no, no. I'm, I'm, I, <laughs> no, I don't do that. But I, I, there's a group called Spybri. I'm a member of on Facebook, and we right, did a virtual right. drinks over the weekend on Saturday. Oh yeah, virtual drinks. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, it was fantastic. So like. There was about, I think, twenty of us on Zoom. Just uh, yeah, yeah, Zoom. Well, that's what we've been using as well. So Zoom's done well. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic, and you could just sort of chat yeah. away and stuff. But yeah. yeah, so I think you know, doing that is a good illustration. We're doing our third. Uh, we became, we've come second. And yeah. I think third. We'll have to do better. We'll have to come first uh, this weekend. <laughs> yes. And and um, and so you know, they used to have quizzes, and uh, and then they would have what they call sods operas, which were like. Um, people dressing up and giving um, entertainment, entertaining themselves, which I suppose is a bit like people now going on and doing all these things on Facebook, dances and performances and singing. So some mariners would do that. Uh, they'd have games evenings as well, you know, play games. We've got Escape from Cold, it's lined up here. Now we're going to do that. Um, and then um, another thing that um, they used to do was study. business. I mean, in the book he said that uh, business studies, maths, English were very popular as as things to do uh, while you're away on a patrol and you're trapped inside a submarine, which is is like lockdown in some ways, and you're in a confined space with loads of people, and uh, you, you've got to get along with them. Um, but there again, of course, we can at least go out for an hour and uh, walk around um, check, as the drones check us out, you know, make sure we're not breaking the rules and keep our distance from people. So I suppose we have that advantage because a submariner doesn't open the hatch for five or six weeks or have any fresh air. So uh, and Rob Rob um, Rob Forsyth was um, he said that sometimes he was to be found uh, making a model HMS Victory oh, and the model making apparently yeah oh, cool. and one of my favorite one of my favorite things they used to do um, that I was told about and um, was 
they used to have a scale-extric league on one nuclear missile submarine, yeah. <laughs> one British one, and they would run the track around the missile tubes. <laughs> and, they would, and, you know, they'd have a car yeah. that they would work on, you know, much like you would in Formula One. Yeah. Um, and they'd have this kind of competition. And uh, we've got scale-extric as well, somewhere out in the, sh- in the shed, if I could just find it. Um, you know, so, I mean, there are all sorts of things that they did. And, and I think um, humour was a great thing. And one one of the things that Rob did, and in fact he's writing a piece for uh, the Warships IFR website on on this, a short piece, was he would he attached his scrubbing brush to a piece of string, and he would um, walk up and down the the corridor, the main corridor of the submarine, or you know the main deck of the submarine, and then sailors would see him dragging this a scrubbing brush along behind him and think, well, what are you doing, sir? And he would say, the, you know, the, the second in commands going nuts you know and they'd say what do you think i'm doing i'm i'm walking my brush you know i'm walking my dog that's what i'm doing and that's how he got his exercise which Excellent. is slightly eccentric yeah it's like the low budget version of crimson tide yeah exactly yeah they said this this was a sort of dog that wouldn't wee on anything <laughs> yeah, so. cause i always remember that crimson yeah. tide because i don't think you'd be able to really keep a dog on a, sh- a submarine would you? no you wouldn't that's a complete, no completely like a cobbler but um <laughs> I think the, um, <laughs> but you know, I think once we start dragging around um, brushes on the end of string, mm. we might need to just get out of lockdown or something. I yeah, think. yeah. Um, but um, anyway, Rob survived. <laughs> He's a very sane individual. Yeah. And uh, the funny thing was, he said that when he used to come back from patrol, mm. sometimes because they didn't want the complexity of life at home, of getting to know their children and re- reintegrating with their families ashore after mm. six weeks away in this isolated community under the sea. Some some sailors um, didn't really want to go home. Mm. They'd rather have the simplistic um, routine of uh, staying aboard a Polaris submarine at sea. So I guess mm. we'll have to reintegrate at some stage into normal life and we'll be the same. Yeah, have yeah. To go out there. But what about food? Are you managing to keep your menu? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's actually yeah. fun enough. The thing that I've been focusing on is trying to do a really nice lunch every day as best as right. we can. So we've done everything from right. like mushroom risottos to um, <laughs> what else we had. Uh, we did a really nice bolognese, um, all sorts of sort of things. Because I, I love cooking. I'm not I'm not a great chef, but I'm um, very enthusiastic about sort of trying to get better at it. So I um, like the we made a lovely katsu curry the other day based on the wagamama recipe um, right right and just stuff like that because it, i think right. food's a real big um you know morale booster i know from filming you know lunch is yeah. probably the most important part yeah. of the day despite what yeah. you're doing well there you are you see you're you're actually there you go you sussed mm. it i mean that's what some some mariners are like as well and they they would also have a um a weekly menu which they mm. would post mm. and I'm, I'm looking at one now actually from an attack submarine and i don't even understand some of it because they would use all this um um slang for 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 food okay. so I, I, I won't even try some of it but they've got i mean let's see we've got um let's pick a day so if you have a menu every day mm. for example hs courageous which is a, a submarine attack submarine in in my book on mm. um hunter killers undersea warriors on the the week of the 11th of may 1972 if we pick what are they doing a friday or a saturday <laughs> friday let's have a friday um okay friday of that week right i think we can understand these Right, as above. Right, okay. So breakfast, they had mm-hmm. toad in the hole. Oh, wow. Toad in the hole. You know what toad in the hole is? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I think I know what it is. What well, is it maybe for American listeners, they might not know what 
toad in the hole. Then what, what is toad in the hole? Then it's sort of it's sausage and batter, isn't it? It's, That's what I got. Yeah, I used to get yeah. it at school. Yeah, yeah I used That's to love breakfast. That. Yeah, would you have God. it for breakfast? No, no, it'd normally be a lunch or a dinner, wouldn't it? Yeah. So then, then okay, let's look at what they had for lunch. They yeah. would have. Okay, I'm going to have to Google some of these things because I don't understand them. Um, right, Friday lunch would be lentil soup. Oh, nice. Which I think we all understand. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hang on. Good for I'll, fiber. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then they have harbour cotters. What, what do you that? think harbour cotters are? I have no idea. What the heck is that? Yeah, what is a harbour cotter? Breaded fish portions, mm. apparently. Okay. And then a choice of omelettes. Nice. A choice of salads. Yeah. Yeah. Always good. Chipped or cream potatoes. Mm hmm. Mushy peas and carrots. Is that, Ooh, that sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I wonder how they um, store the vegetables, because that's the one problem we have. Is like It's very easy to kind of put meats and things in the freezer, but being able to store fresh vegetable, vegetables for a long period of time is really challenging. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been um, to see in various warships, and um, I've done, um, I did a three-day trip, and I've been to see under the sea or in uh, see an HMS Triumph twice. Mm. And in one trip, three-day trip, we, as usual, of course, you – you like to see where everything's stored. So they showed us where everything was stowed away. Um, and they, you have to keep certain, um, like, uh, onions or bananas or whatever. Mm. You have to keep fruit and veg and different types all um, separate. Especially bananas, they, they, yeah. Yeah, because the chemicals are given off. Mm. So it accelerate the, um, the decaying process. Mm. So they stow them away in all these different places. But, of course, the fresh food goes first, doesn't it? It does. So yeah. that that will go first, and then uh, in one um, sounds like our house. That's what happened. Week one of the lockdown, the fresh food was gone. Yeah, exactly. And then they, I suppose, yeah, and then it's the tinned and the frozen, isn't it? So <laughs> yeah. When you, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was the same for them. And in in one diesel submarine that I've got in one of my books mm. during the Cold War, they would stow the bread uh, in these nets in a sort of like around the place, mm. say in a torpedo room, and these loaves would go green with the mold. Mm. So what they would do is they would carve it off. Um, you know, as it went on, and just get to the good bit. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I use something called the reverse quality street principle. Oh yeah. Um, so what that's based on? So you know, you know, at Christmas, usually everybody yeah. eats the really good quality street first. So by the end of the yeah. week, you're left with the yeah, ones that yeah. he likes. So is I I try and get rid of all the the stuff that's not so popular out of the way in the first couple right. of weeks. So then you kind of get the better stuff as you go along, because the yeah. theory is, um, at least my theory was, with the lockdown, your morale is going to get lower and lower. So you want better meals <laughs> as you so go what along. What have you started off then? The sort so of we, beef tins. And... Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I just I'm trying to think of something now, but like noodle-based stuff and things like or pasta-based right. stuff. So we did that in the first couple of weeks, and then we went yeah. to more. Uh, I tried to make it more elaborate after that. <laughs> so like I was more making elaborate. stroganoffs and uh, yeah, risottos. And, I need to yeah. come around your house. Yeah. Sounds a lot better than what we're having. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, no, I've been yeah. yeah. That's what I was sort of the principle I was trying to work on, and it sort of just about worked. Yeah, well, my my um. One of my sons uh, has got. He, he likes to be in charge of doing various things, mm. um, which is quite good. And he's obsessed with spam. Oh, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two tins of spam, and he wants to um, a eat them. I said, well, when you are putting a tin of spam, you've got to eat it. So you'll have to slice it, mm. and you'll have to eat it. And of course, his mum's not too keen on him eating that because <laughs> yeah. to her it's a bit unhealthy. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, wa he wants to know whether or not he can barbecue it. So I said, I don't know, that might be a challenge, barbecuing Spam. You can definitely grill it. Yeah. Yeah, you could. You can grill it and cook it. Because um, I had a, a friend of mine from Korea who used to love Spam, and he used to cook it all the time and put it in all sorts of stuff. And I think even the Korean army had this weird dish that's basically based on spaghetti, beans, noodles, sausages, Spam, and eggs. And 
whatever they can find and kind of chuck it all together and make this and with kimchi and make this really nice i can't remember what it's called now but it's a really nice kind of dish of just random stuff thrown in the pot it's really good yeah yeah well that sounds great yeah. I'll, I'll have to look that up yeah but yeah. no grilled spam i think spam frittatas i think they're called but yeah. there's all sorts of weird things yeah. the only thing i found with spam is actually quite pricey considering how much you get for it. yeah yeah well i've got i've got a few cans in I thought that was the last resort, but yeah. thinking of your coronation, not coronation street, quality <laughs> street. street. I don't know what the, the coronation street method would be. Yeah, God. But, um, yeah, the quality street method. Mm. Uh, maybe yeah. I should have started him off on bully beef and spam. Yeah, um, yeah. It's good yeah. with um, my so my late dad. So when we used to go to, um, we went to this V Day 50th anniversary air show at yeah. um, Duxford, and he, just, as a bit of a celebration to his childhood, he made these spam sandwiches that we had, and we had spam with cream cheese sandwiches and they were really nice actually really? yeah they were surprisingly oh, yeah. really good so, um, i'll have to um, you're making me think yeah. i need to go into that cupboard now yeah cream cheese the Get one with the cream out. cheese and chives that one that particular cream cheese um with okay. spam and it's actually a really nice sandwich <laughs> i think there's a whole podcast for you there yeah different spam dishes cooking. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my goodness. But yeah, brings back good memories. So, <laughs> spam aside, um, on the war yeah. theme. So you've written this fantastic book about Arnhem. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Arnhem. Yeah. I mean, if people think uh, would see that I've done over the past twenty years, I don't know how many naval history books, but I mean, I've always been interested in the people side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, for boys of a certain age, and I'm sure that includes you. Mm. Um, the film A Bridge Too Far. Love that film. Uh, was yeah. a big a big part of our sort of teenage cinema viewing. Mm. Um, and then uh, I read a book, a novel uh, that was released about the same time in the late seventies called uh, the cauldron by Zeno, who was at Arnhem. And it's an incredible story of uh, the 21st independent company of paratroopers. It's, mm. It is a novel. They, he's kind of got fictional characters, but you know that it's based on this unit that he fought in at Arnhem and it's an incredible book. And that was very vivid. And I read uh, General Roy Urquhart's book on Arnhem. He was the commander of the 1st Airborne Division. Yeah. And um, as a kid, a teenager, actually, um, I walked down the Rhine. And so I sort of, with the guy I went with from school, we won a school travel scholarship. Uh, 250 quid, now go off and walk down the Rhine. Um, We headed for Arnhem. And we stayed, I mean, you know, the memory's a bit hazy. It's more than 30 years ago. We stayed in, I'm fairly certain we stayed in a youth hostel out near Oosterbeck because people get confused they call it the Battle of Arnhem but in fact some part of it took place around the famous bridge and then part of the the main part of it took place in the suburb or village of Oosterbeck so and that was near the landing zone so I'm getting complicated here but anyway (laughs) I visited the battle area when I was 17 and we walked in through the woods where they've been fighting to the bridge and um, being a, a you know a cussed or a what can I say, a stubborn teenager, my, my mates, he wanted to go and walk to the centre of the bridge. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to sit here on a bench and watch you walk to the centre of the bridge because it's not the real bridge because it, it fell down, it was bombed uh, uh, after the battle. So, yeah. yeah, so I should have gone and stood on the centre of that bridge. But I had a good look around the town, which was, of course, destroyed by the war. So that wasn't the real town. But I went to Arnhem and then we, we kind of walked back out to Oosterbeck and uh, this was near the end of our journey. Mm. And then we got the train to Amsterdam. So I kind of paid my own visit there years ago, visited what was then the museum um, out there, Oosterbeck. And um, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. And so I also wanted to join the army um, at one stage and Mm. thought, you know, I wouldn't mind 
getting, um, you know, trying to get into the parachute regiment, you know, and, uh, but I didn't, in the end, I didn't do that. And I became a journalist and a writer, but I've always, I've always, I've always had, uh, in, in my mind, I've always sort of admired um, the amazing, hopeless, because of the situation, heroism of uh, the British paratroopers and airborne troops um, at uh, Arnhem. So in 1994, I interviewed for the newspaper I was working on, I interviewed a, a, um, a, a concise, uh, sorry, a, a small group, a band of brothers, if you like, mm. of uh, airborne soldiers, glider pilots, airborne uh, soldiers, and also paratroopers who had fought at Arnhem. And I wrote what was my first proper history uh, work, apart from my A-level history thesis, um, was this, this uh, supplement on uh, day by day with these uh, people uh, following them through the Battle of Arnhem. And I, I did these interviews with these guys uh, who were in their 70s at that stage uh, in the, the, mid the mid-90s. And I sat and talked to them for hours, some of them. And others I talked to on the phone. I checked them out with the museum, make sure or I got all the technical detail of their units right. Mm. And I wrote this sort of very human day-by-day uh, -day story. And so when I saw the anniversary was coming up, I talked to um, Agora Books, who'd published another book of mine called Bismarck, 24 Hours to Doom, yeah. which was also uh, the, the creation of a lot of interviews with veterans who'd been involved in that famous sea battle in World War II. Brilliant. And um, I said, um, what about a book on the Battle of Arnhem? And, you know, and uh, Arnhem, 10 days in the cauldron. The cauldron mm, was, mm. The, was the area that the British Airborne Division was trapped in at the end of the battle mm. on the river, the River mm. Rhine. So um, they said, yeah, we'll, we'll go for that. So um, I got to get all my, my old interviews out, my old stuff, and then I listened to lots of um, Imperial War Museum's sound interviews with all the key players like uh, John Frost and uh, other people who'd commanded paratroopers in action and uh, Brigadier Hackett who'd commanded an air landing brigade, all that sort of stuff. But then the, the really amazing bit, the amazing bit that I got was the help from uh, the Airborne Museum at the Hartenstein um, hotel, what was the Heart of Stein Hotel in Ustebeck, which which is where the Airborne Museum in for the Battle of Arnhem is. Yeah. And they have a, a great archive and it's a great museum from what I can see. Um and um the archivist there uh, helped me out by sending me this amazing account by a Dutch uh, civilian um who had whose house basically hosted British paratroopers and while they fought the Germans, while he, with about 20 local people, his wife and small small child, uh, small da uh, baby daughter, were down in the cellar throughout the whole battle. Oh, wow. And then I also got in touch via a contact out in Holland with um, a guy called Jan Luce, who's who was 14 at the time of the battle, mm. and he's a battlefield guide still mm. um, out there. And he, he gave me his, his own diary of his own experiences in the battle, which was in... in um, in Dutch, but I, I, it was actually a PDF. He didn't have it as a Word document. I translated it using Google Translate <laughs> bit by bit. And then I, I kind of then sent it back to him. And he can read English very well, but obviously writing in English for a book was yeah. maybe something that he needed a lot of help with. So he then looked at it, read it, sorted it out, and helped me with it. And we, we put him in as well. So what I'm really proud of is that it's the kind of soldier's point of view the old veterans that I met um, who have passed away now, they're no longer with us, but their stories that were, were in a newspaper supplement 
1994 and the 50th anniversary came out and was gone in a day. Mm. So I thought, you know, I'm going to keep that. I'm going to use that in a book. I thought that back in 94. So I got their stuff in this book, along with new research at the Imperial Museum and the Airborne Museum at mm. Duxford, mm. Uh, the Airborne Forces Museum, um, and the Dutch uh, Museum, which gave me these civilian accounts. So I've kind of merged them together. Mm. So you have this kind of integrated, true story from the perspective of some civilians mm. uh, and it's incredible stuff you know Franz de Sote and again I hope I've got the translation um, the pronunciation right <laughs> he um, he was the guy that owned this house that the paratroopers were in with his yeah. family and all these other people down in the cellar and his, his, his testimony is just extraordinary and his relationship with the paras and, um, and with him and uh, so I'm just sort of you know and, and Jan's um, incredible stuff as well you know and post the battle what happened to civilians afterwards as well that was pretty traumatic because they were all kicked out of their homes oh, by God. the germans yeah yeah where can people get that book because that sounds fantastic i guess the best way to get it at the moment is uh, via digital you can get that via amazon or uh, agora books mm. um london is the sort of the website uh, or they just go on amazon and find it. it's called arnhem 10 days in the cauldron um, and uh, you know it is a paperback, but that's print on demand. Mm. I think now it has been in the shops, but mm. of course the shops are, are not available. So I think no. digital is probably the way to go. Yeah, fantastic. Well, look, Ian, thank you so much for that. That's brilliant. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work and Warships Magazine? Yeah, I mean for me, it's um, www.ianballantine, I-A-I-N-B-A-L-L-A-N-T-Y-N-E. Dot com mm. for the magazine it's um if you go to the website warshipsifr.com mm -hmm. um, there's a bit on there for subscribing I mean obviously we've we've decided that we have to um, give people options um, yeah. at the moment to get it digitally and we also have a Facebook page yeah. I run my own Facebook pages yeah. and also uh, you know there's Twitter the magazine has a Twitter thing but mm. mainly to access the the mag itself go to the um, warships ifr dot com and uh, that's where you can find out and i'm going over the next few weeks mm. we're going to put uh, some stuff on the website a bit more stuff on the website mm. uh, just to tempt people in brilliant brilliant cool well ian thank you so much for all your time today it's been a really great chat thank you yeah thank you very much like what we're doing connect with us on twitter at dry cleaner cast Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening. This is Need to Know. <laughs>